Welcome to Fertility and Sterility On Air, the podcast where you can stay current on the latest global research in the field of reproductive medicine. This podcast brings you an overview of this month's journal, in-depth discussion with authors, and other special features. FNS On Air is brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility family of journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of FNS Unplugged. I'm Pietro Bordoletto, media editor for FNS Reports and interactive associate in chief for fertility and sterility. And as always, I'm joined by my two very excellent, very smart co-hosts, Dr. Dalen James and Dr. Blake Evans. Dalen, Blake, how are you two? I feel better now after that uh, intro. I don't feel as smart as you made me out to be, but I guess I got something to live up to now. I too feel very uplifted by that intro. I'm doing great. Fantastic to see you all as always. Excited for our podcast today. The next 30 minutes could really only disappoint is I think what Dalon and Blake are saying, but we're going to try our best not to. Today we have kind of a pseudo theme to the podcast. Two out of the three articles we're going to be discussing have something to do with COVID and then one that really has to do with REIs and embryo transfers in general. But let's start with COVID. Blake, you have a great review article that's coming out from FNS Reviews. I'm hoping you could tell us a little bit more about it. Thanks, Pietro. I'm very excited to introduce uh, two of our guests today, one of which is the senior author and one of which is the first author on this paper. So we'll start by just briefly introducing Dr. Alicia Christie. She is the Deputy Directive of Veterans Health Administration in Washington, D.C., and is also faculty at the NIHRI program. And a side fun fact, she helped me publish my very first paper uh, as I was a wee little PGY1. So thank you, Dr. Christie, for that. And we also have Dr. Jasmine Alley today, who we were co-fellows at the NIH together. She is finishing up her last year in the combined genetics and REI fellowship program at the NIH. So today we're going to be discussing the recently published paper in FNS Reviews entitled The Impact of Coronavirus on Reproduction, Contraceptive Access, Pregnancy Rates, Pregnancy Delay, and the Role of Vaccination. So Dr. Alley, Dr. Christie, please fill us in on your paper. I'll start and then uh, Dr. Alley can, can add. I think this is a very timely topic for two reasons. One, uh, there's been a recommendation for fall boosters, and so COVID-19 vaccination and pandemic issues are uh, topics of great relevance. The other is, post the Dobbs decision, one of the things that we addressed in this paper, and it was pre the Dobbs decision, is access to abortion care during the pandemic. And so as a result of the recent Supreme Court decision, there are a number of restrictions. And so the uh, paper does discuss a ways in which you can maintain access to abortion care. And so I'll let Dr. Ali talk uh, more about that. Sure, thank you so much for having us. The premise of our paper was really to examine the impact of COVID on specific areas of reproduction. Uh, we focused on global sentiments around conception, such as desires to conceive, delaying pregnancy, uh, seeking out oocyte cryopreservation during the pandemic, but more importantly, we focused on the impact of the pandemic on access to contraception, access to abortion care, and unintended pregnancy rates. So although there's been an, an arguable kind of recovery from the virus, we're far from recovery with respect to the problems of access to contraception and healthcare, specifically in the current post-Dobbs political climate. So this paper was, um, as Dr. Christie said, a timely opportunity for us to review the very relevant impacts of limiting 
contraception access and abortion care. So the first half of the paper uh, collates the current data we have regarding the impact of the virus on reproduction, and the latter half is focusing on how we can use this information and insight to improve on future responses and also how specifically we can use the insight to provide a more targeted approach for the most vulnerable populations who are affected. So just to give a bit of background, on a global scale, the U.S. has the highest death toll and morbidity from COVID in the world. So although the U.S. comprises 5% of the world population, it, we account for 20% of the COVID-19 cases worldwide. Um, within the U.S., the COVID-19 infection rates, hospitalization, and deaths are disproportionately higher among Black, Hispanic, and American Indian populations. Therefore, the effects on, on reproductive health will be exacerbated in these communities. With regard to contraceptive access, the barriers during COVID-19 were quarantine and travel restrictions, uh, having supply chain shortages of condoms and progesterone-containing IUDs, having fewer appointments because of reduced provider and staff availability, and closure of abortion clinics across the country. Those that reported difficulty with access were more likely to be women of color, women who've had a high school level education, and women who have a decreased income, which underscores the disparity. There is something positive that came out of the pandemic with regard to access, and that really stems from the introduction of telemedicine. Um, so a survey study by providers showed that 80% of providers were using telemedicine for the first time. And also 80% agreed that it was an effective way to provide contraceptive counseling, and that it actually is a service that should be expanded post-pandemic. With regard to birth rates, historically, anytime there's a disaster, that's correlated with a decline in birth rates. How steep the decline is really depends on the severity of the crisis and what the economic status is at the time. So during the Spanish flu, the birth rate declined because of the crisis, but the economy was supported by the ongoing war, and that economic stability counteracted the pandemic-driven decline in birth. In contrast with COVID-19, we have both the pandemic and economic instability, so that it's likely to result in a decrease in pregnancy and birth rates that will persist for long periods of time. 34% of women um, during this pandemic indicated that they delayed their pregnancy as a result of the pandemic. But congruent with that delaying pregnancy, more women in the U.S. actually sought out OSI cryopreservation, with 50% of clinics saying that they had a higher number of freezing OSI cycles in 2020 compared to 2019. The pandemic really offered the window of opportunity to develop strategies to balance the negative effects that occurred on reproductive health. Um, we discussed four strategies in the paper. The first is to increase access and reimbursement for telehealth visits. The second is to increase access to medical abortions via the no-touch policy program, which is essentially giving a mifepristone without an ultrasound via telehealth appointment to patients who meet certain criteria. The third strategy is to increase vaccination in pregnant women. And the fourth is to increase vaccination in the general population by addressing vaccine hesitancy and debunking some of the myths that are propagating the communities. So in conclusion, it's evident that the pandemic has affected reproductive health in the U.S. via multiple mechanisms. As the United States continues to have disproportionately high number of COVID cases and deaths, the duration of these negative effects will be protracted. Unfortunately, women of color and women in more vulnerable groups are disproportionately affected in each of the subsections of reproductive health that we examined in this review. But the pandemic does present an opportunity for us to implement strategies to potentially counteract some of the negative effects on reproductive health that have occurred because of the pandemic. Well, Jasmine, thank you very much for that summary. There's just so many different things with regard to the pandemic and how it relates to our patients on a daily basis. And so I found it really 
interesting to have uh, or see all of this unfolded and read about it in the paper. And although the uh, the approach of having these virtual uh, medical abortion visits in patients, it seems like a great idea. I'm just curious as to your thoughts now that Roe versus Wade is overturned. And my thought immediately was, can a patient still have access to that in a state where abortions are now illegal? Would that be a criminal act, for example, for a physician who's in a state where it's legal providing services for someone in another state? Curious as to your your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think that those thoughts are going amongst many of us in the field and OBs and REIs and all medical practitioners alike. So I think it's a super important question. I think right now there isn't much clarity on the independent state regulated rules surrounding abortions and definitely not any clarity on the ability for telehealth. From my understanding, if that state dictates that abortion clinics in their in their region are not approved, telehealth visits that would be conducted via that clinic are also not approved. So I think it's just going to be largely dependent on state-by-state regulations. ASRM has an inspired tool to help us figure out how we can advocate in our individual and state levels. And I think that that is the best, the best thing we can do. I agree with uh, everything Dr. Uh, Ali said. I think another important consideration is women who have complications of pregnancy that require pregnancy termination, such as incomplete abortion or ectopic pregnancy. And these women are also at risk of being denied emergent medical care that they need. And we've done a real disservice to physicians by not clarifying what the restrictions are and how they directly impact medical care, especially emergent medical care. And I think there are some efforts by the administration through the uh, EMTALA and through Health and Human Services to make sure that they preserve emergent services that require pregnancy termination as part of emergent treatment. And I think that's going to be a critical issue as well. And I think historically, in countries where they have a limited abortion access, more women die. And I am afraid that that is what we're going to see as well. Unfortunately, you're probably right. And it's scary to think of being in this position. And it's such a trying time for us as physicians as well, not even be able to adequately provide care to our patients um, as we um, have been just very recently. So another question I have too is, we have now with regard to COVID and reproduction and pregnancy and infertility treatments, uh, dare I say, a, uh, a wealth of data and studies that have been published at this point, largely of which have reassured the safety of vaccines in pregnancy, have reassured the safety of patients undergoing fertility treatments. And so despite all of that, we still are trying day in and day out to try and convince patients that they need to trust us as physicians, trust the data, trust the science, but there's still so much distrust out there. I really like table two in your paper. We really enjoy a nice table on, on our podcast as we've discussed in the past. I know Daylong gets super excited about those tables and he's really aspiring to one day become a, a clinician with these tables. But I'm just curious as to what you all think in regards to what can we do as physicians, as providers to help trust? One of the things is we have to combat the misinformation. And one of the things that I was tasked with doing in my position was creating a reproductive health and COVID-19 vaccination toolkit for providers in 
I had an opportunity to serve on three different COVID-19 work groups where the focus was encouraging vaccination. And there was an interesting article that was published about the use of Twitter by medical professionals to combat misinformation. And so I think that's going to be a very critical piece as we look towards the fall and the recommendation for an additional booster. There was a, a recent study, uh, I don't believe the work has been published yet, in the ACOG newsletter, uh, information that was presented at a meeting. It was a survey study of OBGYN providers. And the overwhelming majority, 98%, uh, supported and encouraged vaccination, but the vaccination rate for pregnant women is around 20% and really hasn't improved despite the increasing scientific knowledge we have about the safety. Excellent. Well, Dr. Christie, Dr. Ali, thank you so, so much for joining us on our podcast today. It was an absolute pleasure to see you all, even though albeit virtually, it's still great to see you guys. Thank you so much. And to all of our listeners, as usual, please go back and take a look at this article and the wonderful tables. All right. Well, taking a cue from the COVID-themed article in FNS Reviews, FNS Science also happens to have something COVID tangential, not necessarily COVID-19 specific. Dalon, tell us a little bit about what is coming out in your journal. Yes, I would call this COVID adjacent, but this for me is the uh, real silver lining of the, of the pandemic. And it follows, I think, really well. A nice segue from that comprehensive review did, did a great job, in my opinion, of describing how multifaceted the impact of COVID-19 is on reproductive health and access to care. But my intuition, I think like many others, and which was borne out by this review, has always been that the impact on actual reproductive biology is less than the impact derived from social, economic, even like existential considerations. The good news, as I alluded to earlier, the silver lining, it seems like we're back on the back end of the disaster, Fauci's taken a victory lap, it seems, in retirement. And I'm optimistic that future pandemics, although they may be inevitable, will be managed with less collateral damage. But scientists and science enthusiasts, for them, the news is even better because the extreme and universal imposition of behavioral modification across the globe is a dream come true for A-B testing, right? And the early studies in the forthcoming wave are starting to pour in. Um, in the current issue of FNS Science, a team led by husband and wife team, uh, Firuza and Rajesh Parikh from the Jaslak Hospital and Research Center in Mumbai, used the behavioral changes imposed by COVID restrictions to address a question that I've long wondered about. Do the endocrine disrupting chemicals that are ubiquitous in our environment appreciably accumulate in our bodies? And is there anything we can do about it? Uh, I think we know that the answer to the first part is yes, they do accumulate, but the Pariks frame their study with a straightforward hypothesis. That of the myriad phthalates present in our everyday life, the ones that are typically found in personal care products like cosmetics, fragrance would be reduced as women opt out of the use of cosmetics and fragrance. But the phthalates that are present in single-use plastic packaging and personal protective equipment like masks, gloves, et cetera, would be increased. Indeed, not surprising, this is exactly what they found, but they did it in a really, I think, rigorous way using some nice tech, using a liquid chromatography tandem mass spectrometry to measure levels of phthalates and their metabolites, importantly, in cryopreserved follicular fluid samples of 176 women undergoing IVF ICSI, with 96 of those women, that's group A, 
having their follicular fluid samples collected in a 14 month span preceding the lockdown. And the other 80 of the women, that's group B, having their samples collected in eight month span beginning October, 2020, when the pandemic and lockdown was in full swing. They tested a lot of mono, diethyls, butyls, oxahexyls, a lot of stuff that, you know, had me blurry in the eyes. And it's eluding me right now what the specific names are. But the really critical thing is they tested the phthalates and their metabolites because, you know, these things are metabolized in the body and you don't really know. There's trace elements that reflect exposure. The bottom line here was the, the ones from personal care products were significantly reduced. And the ones from single-use plastic and PPE were increased. And this is just what we'd expect. Um, nobody's going to be scratching their heads about this. I get that. But I think this is an important flag to place on the tip of the iceberg that represents the impact of ubiquitous endocrine-disrupting chemicals on health generally and reproductive health specifically. Just like we saw the dramatic reduction in, in greenhouse gas emissions during the pandemic, presumably due to reduced travel. This study from the Pariks provides undeniable evidence, of not just the link between behavior and phthalate levels, but demonstrates the nuanced way in which these chemicals encroach from many angles. Is there a meaningful influence on health at the levels they observed? I don't know. Uh, there's a lot of studies that need to be done to link cause and effect there in terms of these endocrine disrupting chemicals, although I think there's a lot of evidence to suggest that there is historically from BPA and early studies investigating phthalates which suggest the same. We don't really have the complete answer, but the last place I would want a whole bunch of endocrine disrupting plasticizers personally is in the antrum of a follicle that I was hoping to recruit. For me, I think it's a real nice use of this intolerable restrictions of lockdown and really twisting them to our benefit to gain some insight into how these ubiquitous chemicals are absorbed into our bodies. What do you guys think? I've loved so much of the data that's come from the post-pandemic era where we really had intense restrictions and lockdowns. People have looked at on a population level, is preterm birth risk down as a result of modifying our behavior, staying at home, not having this commute, not having a, a traditional work day, um, they've looked at cardiometabolic risk factors and how they've changed with people just having a very different lifestyle that's largely home-based and not work and commute-based. These natural population experiments have been some of my absolute favorites. And I think something that we were unlikely to see again, probably in our lifetime, if we're lucky. But I think the people who are being thoughtful about how to study this now, as we're still so close to it, is, is just so cool. It's been really exciting to see. And I love that this paper is in FNS Science. Yeah, I thought this was... Very interesting. I, what I admittedly, I don't know, as you had alluded to, Daylon, is, is 0.11 versus 0.13 nanograms per ml difference, something that clinically we need to be concerned about. I don't know. I have no idea. But I think it's nonetheless interesting and thought-provoking. And I thought it was really interesting how they set up this study. And I didn't exclusively rely on Daylon to describe to me the results findings. I felt like I could read it as a clinician. I was quite proud of myself, I'm going to admit. You're living up to that real smart thing that I said at the beginning of the podcast. I'm quite proud of you too, Blake. Although, you know, that takes a lot away from me. I really enjoy reading it to you. Like, a, you know, it's like our ritual, buddy. I'm happy to review the data with you. Well, let's round out the podcast with talking about a non-COVID-19 related article. And I have a great article from FNS Reports, a recent edition, that's talking about simulation training for embryo transfers. This is a paper entitled Simulation-Based Training 
for embryo transfers for clinicians with differing levels of expertise by first author Katie Baker, who was a former resident at the Beth Israel Deaconess Program and now an REI fellow at Brown University, and senior author Tom Toth, who is a attending in my practice at Boston IVF. Most are familiar with the embryo transfer simulator that the ACERM has developed in collaboration with Vertimed. It's a really nifty, really cool tool that has helped standardize the teaching of embryo transfers for graduating fellows. I think all of us intrinsically understand that the embryo transfer is really important, but we also have a lot of data to suggest that there's a ton of variation in skill level across training programs. One of the scary statistics is 21% of fellows will graduate fellowship never having performed an embryo transfer. And of those that have, a third had performed less than 10 transfers in their fellowship. For something that is, is as important as we say it is, and the data suggests it is, we're really doing a poor job training our graduating fellows to do this procedure, but simulation is a way to bridge a little bit of that gap. What the authors tried to do with the simulator was figure out are there differences in skill level across different difficulties of embryo transfer. So they recruited three large groups of people. One were novices. These were OBGYN residents who had never performed any transcervical procedure, no IUI, no embryo transfer, though were familiar with the pelvis, the cervix, and could get things through the cervix and into the uterus. There was an intermediate group, which were made up of REI nurses, nurse practitioners, medical assistants, all of which who at Boston IVF perform IUIs. So have comfort level with a catheter, something passing into the service and getting into the uterus. And then there was an expert group, which were REI attendings. They had 10 people in each group, and all three groups got five minutes of the same instruction. The steps of the transfer, how to troubleshoot the transfer, and how the simulator worked. And all three groups performed three separate cases, a beginner case, an intermediate case, and an advanced case five times. So they had an opportunity to see the beginner case, how did they do on the first attempt, all the way to my fifth attempt before moving on to an intermediate and an expert case. And as a point here, because I know a lot of us do embryo transfers very, very differently, these were all afterload-based transfers, and none of the simulator bells and whistles were turned on, meaning they didn't have on-screen guidance. They didn't have the uh, real-time, how are you doing information. It was really just perform the transfer and let the simulator collect information. So let me tell you what they found. As expected, for the beginner case, the really straightforward axial uterus, kind of the chip shot, everyone did really, really well. These weren't hard. The residents took a little bit longer to get good, but by their fifth attempt, they were as good as the nurses, as good as the attendings who had done these kinds of procedures before. That's expected. The intermediate and the advanced cases were the ones where there were some interesting findings. The attendings really shined at the intermediate case. 100% of them achieved a passing score by their last attempt, by their fifth attempt, whereas only 50% of nurses and 70% of residents achieved a passing score by their last attempt. But notably, between the first and fifth attempt, between every person in every group, everyone got better. So there was learning to be had regardless of your skill level. If you're a beginner, you got better. If you're an intermediate person, you got better. And if you were an expert attending, you still got better between your first and fifth case, which is the whole theory behind simulation. Simulation is good for beginners. Simulation is good for experts. The final case was probably the most dramatic one. This was the advanced case. This was those really tricky, you have to put a bend in the catheter, go up, go down, go left, go right. We've all kind of done this on that simulator. Only 10% of the residents passed. 0% of the nurses passed. Get this, 40% of the attendings passed on their first attempt. But again, everyone showed improvement. No matter what your skill level was, there was learning to be had between the first and fifth attempt. So just 
practicing in a controlled, safe environment where you're not wasting precious embryos that were expensive and hard to create was meaningful for every skill level, which was really cool. And when I asked senior author Tom Toth what he really wanted to highlight from this study and what he was most proud of was, one, learning occurred across all learners, and it's the more challenging models that provided the most learning. So let's not waste our time with these chip shot cases. Let's really dig into these intermediate and expert level cases if we're going to practice simulation at all. And then the other thing is he noticed as they were doing the study, the nurses at the center were really interested in simulation. We traditionally think about simulation for physicians, people who are kind of performing these procedures day in and day out. But our nurses and centers all over the United States are performing a lot of these IUIs themselves. And if we can use the embryo transfer simulator to give them some guidance to improve their ability to safely and quickly get a catheter, pass the cervix into the uterus and deposit the sperm, it sounds like there may be some interest there. And I think something that's definitely worth exploring. And finally, the embryologist really loved the idea that you could measure where the catheter is, how fast you're plunging the catheter, and all of the data that you can get from the simulator. And I'll say that at Boston IVF, my center, everything is afterload. The embryologist delivers the plunge, and all of this is done under ultrasound guidance. The thought being that you minimize the time that the embryo is outside of the incubator and not in the uterine cavity. I know that if I were to ask Blake, if I were to ask Molly Cornfield, our producer, who's a fellow at OHSU, you would probably tell me two different answers for how your center performs embryo transfers. But Blake, let me ask you, do you have any experience with the simulator? Now being an attending, this makes sense to you that people would learn and get better? I do. I have done the course, the like full course when Dr. Kutaferis, Dr. Seegers had traveled and we went to do that in Baltimore, close to where our fellowship program was. And I've also done it at a couple of the fellowship conferences. So I do think it's a fantastic tool. It's very helpful. I really think it's something important to do. It doesn't completely take into effect when you're actually doing a transfer and it's a real person with a real embryo, your nerves that come into play as well. So I still think it's it's crucial to learn daring fellowship training, but I still think this is a fantastic tool and a great course if anyone out there has not taken it yet but I think it's becoming more and more common for all fellowship programs to have their fellows do it at some point. And Dalon, yeah. this may be a way for you to actually get your wish of trying to use some of what you're learning in this podcast to venture into the clinician world. Let's get you on the simulator, see how you do, see if those pipetting hands from your lab work translate. I don't know about that. I'm sticking to the tables. I'm going to be the table guy and I'm just going to give medical advice. I'm not going to do any even minor surgeries. You know, I'm going to stay in my wheelhouse. One thing I'll say, though, you know, is that you're not going to get me near the simulator, but I was pretty crazy with the finishing moves in Mortal Kombat, you know, so I wouldn't underestimate me there in the simulator. But I'm sure there's going to be a lot of bets won and lost amongst the attendings is the, the harsh reality of this. I think it's going to get gamified. A question I have for you all is because there is a seems to be a rise of a lot of clinics who have physicians, OBGYNs that are not fellowship trained, that are providing IVF services, which, you know, to me sounds so odd, but I know that there are some REIs that are in support of it for various reasons. Do you think that those said clinics will look at this paper as ammunition for, hey, this shows that anyone can do it. If a nurse can do it, if a resident who's never done a transfer can do it, then by golly, I'm going to have this person who's an OBGYN who's never done embryo transfer before do it. So I, I was just curious to bring that angle to the table, see what you guys thought. I'll point out the intermediate group data, which was that 
100% of the attendings achieved a passing score within their five attempts, but only 50% of nurses and slightly more residents. So I think there is something to expertise. The whole Malcolm Gladwell idea of if you do something enough times, you really can become an expert at something. And I think fellowship is the time in which people become experts at things. And certainly the first couple of years after fellowship are really the time where you feel comfortable being an expert at things. I think the simulator is a way to help get people expertise. Nothing substitutes, I think, a real patient and a real embryo transfer and kind of the temperature in the room when you're handling all of these things. But to me, I think the data actually says that you want someone who's fellowship trained doing these things. They're the ones who are going to achieve the highest level of proficiency and I think likely give the patient the best outcome. To paraphrase that, you know, I could rip out a heart in Mortal Kombat, but you're not going to catch me doing any organ transplants. Perfect analogy. And also, though no one will admit this, do you think there was an intimidation factor going on by the experts staring at the novice levels when they were doing their transfer saying, you better screw this up to make me look better? You know, I'd have to read the method section a little bit more carefully, but I'd have to imagine the, the team was thoughtful about not putting them in the same room at the same time. But if you're listening to this podcast and you're curious about that answer, you're going to have to check out the article in FNS Reports by Dr. Katie Baker, senior author Tom Toth. As always, I want to thank everyone for listening. I know we started with COVID, ended up with phthalates, and then really kind of brought it home. And the conversation always continues after this podcast is done. Make sure you're following us on our Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook accounts. And make sure you're listening to our companion podcast episode, the FNS On Air, where we talk about what's coming out in fertility and sterility and run through our favorite articles in the table of contents. As always, special thanks to you, Dalon and Blake. And a special shout out to Molly Cornfield, our OHSU fellow and executive producer for this podcast. Thanks all. And we'll see you again next time. This podcast was developed by Fertility and Sterility and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine as an educational resource and service to its members and other practicing clinicians. While the podcast reflects the views of the authors and the hosts, it is not intended to be the only approved standard of practice or to direct an exclusive course of treatment. The opinions expressed are those of the discussants and do not reflect the Fertility and Sterility family of journals or the American Society for Reproductive Medicine.